Howdy, folks. Today, we're going to talk about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And the point is going to be that if you, and by you, I'm meaning a faithful child of God, and if you are not a faithful child of God, you need to get on board, all right? But if you, a faithful child of God, are going to suffer, you ought to suffer for doing good rather than doing evil. Now, when we break down lessons like we're going to talk about today, it's important to note, and sometimes there are people that profess to be Christians that kind of get this wrong. There are times where people, you know, attribute something that they're going through in life to them being a Christian. Listen, everybody in the world faces adversities, and some things are common to man. You know, that's the language in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. But the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. If you look at that word temptation, it, it, it's like a testing of, a proof of, uh, it's, it's adversity, you know, facing some kind of trial. There are things that everybody in the world go through, whether they're faithful children of God or atheists. Uh, whether they are faithful children of God or false brethren, whether they are faithful children of God or utter hypocrites, and on and on you can go. Like, hey, everybody in the United States of America right now are facing certain types of things like uh, economical issues. It has nothing to do with me being a Christian or you being a Christian that you're suffering those things. So we always want to be careful to make sure that we understand that if we're suffering from something, that it, it, it we're not saying it's because I'm a Christian. I, I mean, much of what people in modern-day United States of America face is common to everybody, Christian or not. So with that out of the way, the point that we're going to be talking about is we live in a world, and, and it's not just today's world, but even going back to the time where the children of of Israel were their own nation, and God was their God. Of course, now we know uh, that all of that has changed. If you're stepping back and you're still thinking physical Israel is the children of God, that's incorrect. You can go read Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 and see that that's incorrect. You can go and look at Hebrews chapter 12 and see that Mount Zion of today is the in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 teaches this the Mount Zion of today, the city of the living God, is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the general assembly and church of the firstborn, the firstborn being the firstborn from the dead in reference to Jesus Christ, and includes uh, those that are written in heaven, the God, just uh, the God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Um, I somewhat paraphrase that so you want to go check that yourself, you can read it in Hebrews chapter 12, 22 and 23. And when I talked about Jesus Christ being the firstborn from the dead, uh, you can go and read the context of Colossians 1, 12 through 18, where verse 18 says, he is the head of the body, the he in this context is Christ. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So uh, not to get in an entire different lesson right there, but the point being, uh, going back to the Old Testament, Israel at that time was uh, God's chosen people. He was their God. And even during that time, among those professing to be and chosen to be God's people, there wasn't justice. In Isaiah, for example, Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, how was the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and followeth after reward. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. If you look at Micah the prophet, Micah 3, Verse 11, the heads thereof judge for reward, meaning bribes, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. You can see that there wasn't justice 
in the form of their civil government, in the form of their spiritual government, which was one of the same under the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, that bribery was in place, that they were robbing those that were incapable of taking care of themselves, the fatherless and the widows. Just a terrible time. Finding true justice has been a problem for thousands of years. And that's not by God's design. You know, under the law of Moses, Deuteronomy 16, 19, thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. It wasn't by God's design. Not at all. God is a just God. He is a right God. In Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. When we're looking at God and His character, we don't want to blame Him for what's going on in the world. He created the world, but He created the world in which He gave man free will. And man has used that free will to not follow God's design, to not follow God's pattern, but rather to be a perversion unto themselves. Fact is, even with the injustices that are done, there have long been those that think afflicting a just person is a good work, and they do this because they're misguided. Jesus warned the apostles in John 16, 1 through 3, he says, "'These things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended.'" They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. When we look at that, people that think they're doing the right thing when they're really afflicting the just. And you know, there are people that will say, yeah, but you know, somebody like Stephen, I, I want to use this account uh, here in a moment. We'll look at Acts 6 and Acts 7. And they'll say, yeah, but if a Christian just controls their tongue, they'll keep themselves uh, out of trouble. And to a degree, knowing when to say something and when not to is very important. At the same time, as faithful children of God, there are times where we can't remain silent. And we're not apostles today. And the exact precise example does not stand today, but the principle does. The apostles were commanded not to teach in the name of Christ, Acts 5 and verse 28, and not to fill Jerusalem with their doctrine. Well, imagine today if our civil authorities came to us, um, and I could see this happening in El Paso because we live in a very liberal city, a city that you know is certainly willing to practice unjust laws as well as just an unbelievable amount of ungodliness. And they would command us, don't, don't teach against alcoholism anymore. Don't teach against lying anymore. Don't teach against adultery anymore. And in principle, we'd have to answer like Peter and the apostles did. In Acts 5.29, we'd have to say we ought to obey God rather than men. And there are people that would look at that and say, but haven't you got yourself in trouble? I mean, learn how to talk to people. Listen, folks, we as Christians are wise enough to know how to talk to people. You know, for example... When I meet somebody that I don't know, and I'm trying to drum up a conversation with them, hey, listen, you, you want some good counsel, some good advice? If you meet somebody and just off the cuff are trying to have a discussion with them, talk about global warming. It's a real icebreaker. <laughs> Who says we don't have wisdom, right? Okay, all joking aside... We can't compromise truth ever in any situation, right? I mean, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote the people of Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. Now, understanding the Apostle Paul was moved by the Holy Spirit. He was an ambassador for Christ as an apostle. He literally spake on behalf of Christ. He was a representative of Christ. Christians don't hold that role today. But again, another principle that we see in Ephesians chapter 6 in the context where he's talking about these things, he says in Ephesians 6, 19, that utterance may be given unto him that he would open his mouth bold, excuse me, boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Well, the mystery is now made known. We're not revealing something that was hidden. You know, as the New Testament became 
more and more uh, taught through, the mystery became unveiled. Now, anybody can open their Bible and read and understand the mystery, Ephesians 3, 4, and that same letter that I just made reference to, but we even more than they in that we have the entirety of God's Word revealed unto us. Nonetheless, being able to speak boldly, being able to be frank, to be confident, to wax bold, yeah, we still need to be able to do that. We still need to be the people who have the ability to use great plainness of speech because though the mystery has been unveiled, the hope that was revealed throughout that mystery that now is made known in Christ, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3.12, seeing then we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. That plays into what we're going to talk about today once we get down to 1 Peter 3.15. So we ought to be able to speak in a way that is bold. Well, will that get you in trouble? Yes. And this is one of the areas where Christians will suffer differently than everybody else in the world because the world doesn't have conviction upon which they stand. They don't have conviction of moral standing upon which we stand. They don't have the righteousness of God for which we stand who are in Christ Jesus. So Stephen in Acts 6 8 through 14, was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. So there rose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians and those Cilicia, Asia, and they disputed with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And just so we're all familiar here, Acts 6, 5, he spake by the Holy Ghost, Okay. So in Acts 6, 11, they stubborn men, which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes came upon him and caught him and brought him in the council, set up false witnesses, witnesses, which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered. Look, they, they, they created a false account against this man. Well, back to what I was talking about. Being a Christian and speaking boldly in these cases is going to get you into trouble. You know, maybe a person of the world might lie here, or they might do some other thing. No, Stephen preached the gospel to them in Acts 7. And then he got very point blank. And remember... For those of you out there that are, that, that are of this mindset, that we ought to say things in a way that is non-offensive. Truth is offensive. It's just a fact. And being bold is a requirement of Christians. So Stephen, filled with the Holy Ghost, said in Acts 7.51, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets... Have not your fathers persecuted, and they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom you now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. Now listen, there are a lot of people that profess to be faithful Christians, and they beat around the bush so that when they're telling somebody they're a sinner, the person that's hearing them has no idea that they're actually telling them they're a sinner. If you are concealing the truth so much to try to be politically correct or kind, or whatever the case may be, to stay out of trouble or not to offend somebody, you're not actually speaking the truth because the recipient of that message has no idea that you're telling them something is wrong. It's like going to a doctor and the doctor sees that you have cancer. And if you don't get immediate surgery, this cancer is going to take your life likely within six months. And then the doctor comes in and says to you, you know, I saw some concerning things on the scan, and we should probably do something about that. Um, so, you know, what, what course of action do you want to take? And then you, you reply to them and say, well, what course of action do you think I should take, doctor? And the doctor says, well, you know, I, I mean, you know, it, it's not like you're going to die today if you don't do anything. Uh, I, I just think maybe, you know, Maybe we ought, to, we ought to look at your options and so forth, so on. And, and you look back at them and you say, so should we talk about that today or 
or do I have time? Oh, no, you, you know, you have time. I don't want to scare you or anything. I, I don't want you to, I don't want, are you kidding me? Why doesn't the doctor come in and say, look, here's your options, surgery or death in six months? See, that's clear, right? And good doctors communicate like that, right? Stephen communicated like that. Yet, in verse 54, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, gnashed on him with their teeth. He being full of the Holy Ghost. I'm telling you, I'm glad that the context repeats this because people today would say, well, Stephen got himself in trouble. No, Stephen was moved by the Holy Ghost and he spake as he was moved. He looked up steadfast into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. This is God's approval. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. <laughs> Stephen was able to talk to Jesus in Acts 7.59. He kneeled down, verse 60, and he asked the Lord not to lay that sin to their charge, and then he died. Folks, that's, that's what it is to be a faithful child of God, to speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is caring about souls. It's not putting in a way that's not offensive. What he said was so offensive that they killed him for it. Now, he could have put it like this, right? Now, listen, guys, you don't want to be like some people in the past who have rejected God. <laughs> okay, that's a whole lot different than your father's, right? It doesn't communicate the very same message, doesn't indict the people present at all. And then Stephen could have walked away. Well, I told him the truth. No, you didn't. They didn't even know who you're talking about. They thought you were talking about somebody else. Probably would have thought you were talking about Gentile nations. Look, they set up false witnesses. They attacked Stephen, and he spoke the truth. What did he suffer for? For doing good rather than evil. Back in the Old Testament in the Psalms, Psalm 27 and verse 12 says, Delivering me not over the will of mine enemies, for false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. The world will throw at us unjust measures. Don't compromise. Stand. And if you're going to suffer, suffer for the sake of our Lord, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of lost souls that need to see the truth being lived out. This is all in preparation to our text. First Peter 3, this is a, bit, a little bit of a longer introduction than I had originally intended. But First Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that, whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing." So let's break this down. Let's break this down. There's a general principle, right? And obviously it's a general principle because we're talking about suffering for righteousness sake. The context is self-explanatory. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that good, which is good? A general principle here. Proverbs 16, 7 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him. The world doesn't want us to be activists who are out there causing problems. And if you followed the lessons in this series, you know, we started talking about this back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and following, right? And we talked about obeying uh, civil authorities, verses 16 and 17, those that may be masters if we were put in a position of slavery, those that would be masters uh, over us to be obedient to them, uh, we talked about honoring the king and all, 1 Peter 2, 17. We, we looked at Jesus' example of suffering. We looked at the woman who's married to a non-Christian man and made the likewise example out of that uh, with husbands. When a man's ways please the Lord, he maketh even his enemies to be at peace with him, is a general principle. Keep your head down, live faithful, do your work. That doesn't mean compromise the truth. It doesn't mean be ashamed of our Lord. It doesn't mean say things in a way that nobody knows what you're saying. It means don't be a troublemaker, right? Don't go out there and bring unnecessary attention upon yourself. 
Romans 13, we talked about this when we were looking at uh, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 16. The first three verses says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power, power here being authority, but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore shall resist the power, resist the ordinance of God, they that resist shall receive themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Look, you get pulled over by a police officer. Maybe you didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you, you, know, you followed the law. You can respond to that police officer in one of two ways. You can show respect to his position of authority, and you can obey his position of authority, or you can speak in such a way that's going to get you thrown in the handcuffs. We as Christians do not want to bring upon ourselves unnecessary harm. Suffering in that case, you know, if the police officer says, I'd like to see your driver's license and insurance and, you know, whatever else they may ask for, and you look at him, you're saying, who are you? Who are you? I'm a Christian. I don't have to say anything. I don't have to do anything. I answer to one that is God, and you, my friend, are not God. <laughs> what are you doing? You end up arrested at the end of it, charged with whatever the officer, and then you tell people, yeah, I suffer for righteousness sake. No, you didn't. You suffer, suffer for being an idiot. The Bible tells you to submit to that authority. You actually disobeyed God in his name. You're an idiot, right? In general, if you follow that, that police officer's instructions, and it's not, it's not always going to be the case, right? We're going to talk about that here in just less than a minute. But in general, whatever's going to happen, even if he gives you a ticket, you take it, you move on, you're not going to end up in jail. If you despise his authority, you go contrary to the laws of man, you're going to suffer. That's not wise. Now, I said in general, because like we talked about with Stephen, right? Psalm 35, 11 and 12 says, false witnesses did rise up and they laid to my charge things that I knew not. They rewarded me evil for good to the spoiling of my soul. Psalm 38, 20, they also that render evil for good are mine adversaries because I follow the thing that good is. Jesus to the disciples in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So in general, we're going to stay out of trouble in general, by being followers of that which is good. But there will be, because you're a faithful child of God, those that will attack you for good. It's not a guarantee that I'm going to obey God, I'm going to be a good citizen, keeps you out of trouble. Think about Jesus, right? Right? When, when you look at the language that Peter used in Acts 3, 13 through 15, he said, you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murder to be granted unto you. There's nothing good about that. Jesus didn't do anything wrong. Pilate recognized that he was just, but the children of Israel chose to have Jesus' blood on their and their children's heads. And they didn't care that he was a just man. So in general... If you do that which is good, you'll not suffer harm. However, there are those cases where because you're a faithful child of God, you're going to suffer. And that is where the text goes. 1 Peter 3.13 continues, But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happier you and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. So it continues to tell you, yes, you might suffer for righteousness' sake. I again draw your attention to Acts 5 where... The apostles were being persecuted. In verses 40 through 42, uh, Gamaliel had just given a defense of them to see whether the things that they're going to, to say and do are of God. And the council agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Well, what did the apostles do with that? They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Being willing to suffer for righteousness sake. And that's a mindset. 
You know, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, he talks about how it was uh, he had visions and revelations of the Lord, things that he couldn't even put into words uh, that he saw, and that he prayed to God and he asked the Lord that the thing that he was suffering in the flesh, his thorn in the flesh, might be taken from him. And he asked the Lord for that. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the Apostle Paul's mindset then was this. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Being able to suffer for righteousness' sake and to be happy that you're suffering for righteousness' sake. That is a mindset. I, I, I'll tell you what, just a little off topic for a second. Right now, as I'm recording this podcast, I'm actually able to do it from my desk because I'm the only one home. Normally, I have to go into uh, the garage and shut the door, and you all might recall this if you're listening to my podcast regularly. I have a daughter that's mentally retarded, Taylor. She's an adult. Uh, and she'll go through the house sometimes just making the craziest of noises. Now, I have an unrelated off-topic point I'm getting to. It's not, not just a bunch of mumble-jumble, but talk about suffering for righteousness sake. Right now, my dog, Boomer, has joined me for the first time uh, that I, in a long time during a podcast because he stopped following me into the garage because I shut the door and he didn't want to be shut in there for an hour or so. Well, now he's, he's sitting where he normally sits most of the day, right here next to my desk, and he keeps coming up. And I've had to move the microphone, so if you've heard the microphone moving, I've been trying to not... He keeps coming up, and I got to tell you, it's almost as if he was going to speak into the microphone just about 10 seconds before I started into this little thing. Now, my poor dog is suffering for righteousness sake, right? Okay, okay, maybe that wasn't as funny as whatever I said earlier, the global warming thing, but <laughs> if you could see what he was doing, I mean, he was like... Maybe you heard him sniffing the microphone. I don't know, but uh, it's kind of hilarious to me. So I got to get back on. <laughs> I got to get back on point here. It's all about mindset, right? Paul in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, uh, taking pleasure in this. The apostles taking pleasure and they're willing to suffer and know that not only the eternal reward, and, and there is that. There's a context that gives us both. There's also a physical side of, of this. Uh, in James, the first chapter, verses two and three, and then verse 12, James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall in diver temptation, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The word patience means endurance there. Then in verse 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord had promised them that love him. By suffering in the flesh for the sake of Christ, not the general things of the world, we're talking about for in Christ, builds endurance. Those of us that faithfully preach the gospel have a slight advantage in this. We tend to suffer more than others have, and I've certainly been through quite a few things. Katrina and I talk sometimes, uh, and it almost doesn't even seem real. Some of the things that we have faced for the sake of the gospel, and my whole family, of course, has been drugged through that. Just times where I've preached moving sermons, and, you know, within a short few days, uh, my family is packing up a house and we're looking for where, where I'm going to go to preach the gospel next. And, you know, everything is in disarray. We, we don't know where funds are going to come from, if they're going to come, if, if I'm going to have to do this or that. Uh, suffered through uh, some mistreatment. I mean, those that profess to be brethren uh, have mistreated me more in life than people that are of the world, that are of Satan. And that could be rather discouraging. Or it can be James 1, 2, and 3. It builds up your endurance. You get the ability to go through those things and not be crushed for it. 
And you see the adverse effect on people that have suffered very little for the sake of Christ, that they go through one thing. Next thing you know, they're essentially blaming God and taking everything that they're going through in all the wrong ways. Ah, the end is eternal life, but even in the present, if we suffer for the sake of Christ, then we get strength. And you think about when we get into 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, verses 1 and 2, says, For then as much as Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh of God, the lust of men, but to the will of God. The more you go through for Christ, the more invested you are. Uh, sometimes people that fall away, you know, they've, they've never had both feet in Christ. They've been there because things are good and peaceful. And then when the carnal peace goes away, hey, listen, if you don't realize this and why Paul could say what he did and the apostles did, could go through what they went through, even though they were facing extreme adversity in the flesh, there is a peace that is in Christ. Even when you're suffering in the world, that is beyond the comprehension of most people. Paul talked about it in Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Even when you're suffering through things, this builds that endurance. You know, it might not be okay tomorrow in a carnal sense, but you've gotten through it in the past and you know the end is eternal life and you're focused on the finish line. You're focused on the finish line. I, wanna, I want you to think about how our context goes on. Happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Uh, even in the Old Testament, before the promise, promises that we have in Christ uh, came to be, Psalm 56, and, and there's going to be a verse here that I'm, I'm going to repeat here in a moment, Psalm 56 in verse 3, but, but I want I want to read to you the entire psalm. Now, this with the understanding that during the Old Testament times, they were under a carnal law. Their promise was physical. It was the land that God had promised to give them going all the way back uh, to Abraham forward, again, coming out of Egypt, Moses leading them into the promised land. We know that Moses didn't ultimately end up leading them in the promised land. Joshua did, uh, etc. Well, Psalm 56, just with, with that physical side behind it, yet principles that we want to draw from because those things that are written aforetime are written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope for Romans 15 verse 4. The psalmist said in Psalm 56 this, be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. My enemies would daily swallow me up. For there be many that fight against me, O thou most high, what time I am afraid I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? And thine anger cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest me wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall my enemies turn back. This I know, for God is for me. And God will I praise his word. And the Lord will I praise his word. And God hath put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praise unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Now that's a different meaning under the old law than now, but catch the principle. Thou hast delivered my soul from death. Will thou not deliver my feet from following that I may walk before God in the light of living? God's not going to raise up the armies of Israel to deliver us from physical persecution uh, in times of tribulation that we may face in the flesh today. Because our fight is not carnal, right? Our fight is spiritual. We're not carnal soldiers. If you study through... Uh, the Old Testament, you see that the children of God of old were soldiers, literally in physical battles. Uh, we're not. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal 
2 Corinthians 10 and verse 4. That doesn't mean they're not powerful. They're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. We are equipped with spiritual armor. We see that in texts like Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through 18. Not physical armor, right? So different in application, but same in principle. Why would I fear man while I'm a servant of God? Man cannot destroy my flesh. I'm, I'm sorry, man can destroy my flesh. Misspoke there. They can't destroy my soul. Matthew chapter 10, verses 20 through 28. 22 through 28. Jesus tells his disciples, You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another. For verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak in light. And what you hear in the ear, that preach on the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. So, so hey, listen, man, <laughs> oh man, you can't do to me what God can do to me. I'm not going to disobey him and face his wrath even if that means facing your wrath. And we know that it's going to work out for good. Now, that's not in the flesh. That's not in the permanent. You know, one of, one of the verses that people twist very often is Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them or are called according to His purpose. And they put a carnal spin on that. Oh, it'll all work out. Don't worry about it. God's got a plan for you. No, He doesn't. No, He doesn't. It might not all work out. You know, I, I think... Ugh. I think people just don't look at the Bible. I think they they treat God like he's a made-up character like Santa Claus. Hey, sometimes it's, it's just not going to work out for good in the flesh, right? I mean, James, the brother of John, was killed with the sword in Acts 12, 1 and 2. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you gonna, oh, don't worry, it's all going to work out. No, it didn't. What Romans 8, 28 is talking about is that you will suffer for the sake of Christ and them more than than we today are facing in the present. But in the end, you're conquerors. We just went over this text in a recent podcast, but let me bring it to your attention again. Romans 8, 28 says what, what we just read. Verse 29 through 39 says, For whom he did foreknow, he predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, when he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he justified. Whom he justified, them he glorified. What should we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yet rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God who maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril, or sword, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for thy slaughter, for the slaughter. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that love us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at that. You are, as a faithful child of God, subject to suffering things in the flesh, to being persecuted, possibly being put to death. But you will not be separated from the love of God if you remain faithful. So, don't be afraid of their terror, nor be troubled. Here it is, real simple. Unless Jesus comes first, we're all going to die. And there are things that we could suffer through that are common to man. Illnesses, diseases, I mean... I don't know if you've paid attention to the news lately, but there are diseases coming into our country, and you know why that is, right? Because we have an open border that haven't existed in our country for many, many years. Things that have been eradicated, things that have been gone, like the measles. And there are worse things coming into our country. 
we could catch these diseases, we could get sick, we could die. I mean, the next plague could be upon us because we have open borders. That suffering might last weeks, months, and years before you die. It might be excruciating. And that's common man. Common man. Other people in other places face those things all the time. It's not because you're a Christian. If you're going to suffer, it is better to suffer for the will of Christ, to be rewarded with eternal life, the crown of glory. That's how and when all things work together for good. Even if we have disease, it's better to be faithful and end in heaven because we're going to die regardless. So you come to the house and you knock on the door, ring the doorbell, whatever, or a lot of what I face when I'm out trying to talk to people about the gospel is their ring doorbell or whatever other technology they've got. Uh, you know, you're being recorded, all kinds of different messages that you hear. They don't even answer to the door. Somebody comes to whatever way your door gets your attention and tells you, you will cease to be a Christian today or we're going to stone you to death. I know that's not practiced in the United States of America today and, and, and a lot of other places. There are a few places where it might be Muslim countries, etc. But if that happens, open the door. If you're going to die... Go out standing for the Lord rather than dying from some plague. Now, don't get me wrong. As Christians, we have the right to flee persecution, Acts 8. I'm not telling you literally to open the door. I'm just saying there are worse ways to die than suffering for Christ. And that's the point of our context, of our study, right? So then, 1 Peter 3.15, a very highly misunderstood and perverted passage, says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That means to hallow Him. It's the same word in Matthew 6.9, after this manner, pray therefore, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Same, same word, the Lord God in your hearts. Old Testament principle here, Isaiah 8.13, sanctify the Lord of hosts Himself and let Him be your fear and let Him be your dread. Put Him in your heart. If you're facing persecution, now think back to what we read earlier in Psalm 56.3. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. Look, it's not that God is going to reach down from heaven and deliver you out of persecution. He's not. And even when he did of old, he doesn't operate that same way uh, today. He's not going to deliver us out of Egyptian bondage. He's not going to send us a Moses and an Aaron, Okay. But like that psalm, when I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. I'm not going to say, God, deliver me now. But whatever happens to me, I know that my soul is in the hands of my Lord. So I'm not going to be afraid. Even again, even in the Old Testament. And I hate that the saints of old who do not have the hope in Christ that we have today seemed in many times to be more bold than people that profess to be Christians today. The saints of old said things like this, Psalm 112, 7. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Hmm. So from that, with sanctifying the Lord God in your hearts, that takes away that fear. That gives us that boldness. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that's when you with meekness and in fear. Ready to give an answer. I want to talk about something here before, before we get into what this is. I don't know about you, but I was incorrectly taught 1 Peter 3.15 when I was a babe in Christ. And for a number of years thought that the meaning of this verse was every time somebody asks me a Bible question, I need to be ready to answer it. And even more so that this meant I need to be set for the defense of the gospel. Well, that is another passage. That's Philippians 1 and verse 17, right? Uh, where Paul said that he was set for the defense of the gospel. Uh, and a whole different context in itself. That's not our text today. But I was taught 1 Peter 3.15 meant go out against those false teachers. But when you study the Bible as a whole, and you already know that this isn't the context. This context is when you're brought before men 
suffering for the sake ah, suffering for the sake of Christ for you to be ready to give an answer is not go out and fight against false doctrine. In fact, there are many instructions that teach us not to do that, right? Now, pay close attention to what I said lest you send me a message and you tell me, what about Jude verse 3? I said, go out and stand against false doctrine. Jude verse 3 is in the context where we earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints, where false doctrine comes in. The very next verse, there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turned the grace of our Lord and the sins of dying, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the context of Jude verse 3 is when it comes in, stand against it. That's the idea of Philippians 1.17 being set for the defense of the gospel. Defense and offense are two different things, right? The offense comes at the defense, not the other way around. Proverbs 14.7 says, Go from the presence of a foolish man when thou perceivest not in him the lips of knowledge. Romans 16, 17, and 18, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. For they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. 2 Timothy 2, 23, and this reference and the next reference I'm going to give you and the next reference I'm going to give you after that are all written to evangelists, men that are preached the word, be instant in season, out of season, 2 Timothy 4, 2, to these evangelists, Timothy and Titus, uh, Timothy first, 2 Timothy 2.23, but foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing they do gender strife. And the very next chapter, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of their from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep in the houses and led captive silly women laden with sins, led away with divers' lusts, ever learning and ever able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janus and Jambres withstood Moses, so also these resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no farther, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs was also. Did you hear that? Did you hear what was in that? And verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Here's an evangelist saying, avoid, uh, 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 apostle to an evangelist, avoid these types. In Titus chapter 3, 9 through 11, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and striving about the law for they're unprofitable in vain. Man that's an heretic after the first, second admonition, reject knowing that he is such a subverted and sin of being condemned of himself. First Peter 3.15 is used a lot. I heard it all the days that I was young in the faith about defending the gospel, debating people, etc. All the scriptures I just gave you show that that's an incorrect meaning. Furthermore, the context of 1 Peter 3.15 has nothing to do with going out and defending the gospel. It's about when being brought in the, in the context of persecution before men, being ready to give an answer to who, to who, to who? Every man that asketh. See, it's not even an evangelism. People have used 1 Peter 3.15 to talk about evangelism. It's, no, it's not that. To every man that asketh you a reason in the context of suffering persecution. So now that we got that ready, let's get into this. Ready to give an answer of the hope. The psalmist in Psalm 119.46 says, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Boom, there it is. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, uh, just to keep this brief, the, the whole chapter, go back and read it. Verses 14 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready, that at the time when you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, sultry, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if you worship not, you should be cast in that same hour in the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that, that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, 
We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known to thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. They were ready to give an answer. Did you hear that? Without the hope that we have, they were ready to give an answer. When we think of the hope for us, Colossians 1.5, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, where you've heard before the word of the truth, the gospel, that's our hope. When we think about being ready, Colossians 4, 5, and 6, walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seed, and with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Be ready to give an answer. Know how to give an answer. Be prepared to do that. Doing so with meekness. Ready to give an answer to every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness. James 3.13 teaches us, talking about the tongue. Who's a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show off a good conversation in his works with meekness of wisdom and then with fear. Well, 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men who are made manifest unto God, and I trust made manifest in your conscience. Not fear of what they're going to do to us, but fear of what will come upon them. Like we saw in Stephen. He was afraid for the people stoning him. He knows the fury of God. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, that's not how 1 Peter 3.15 is normally taught, but that is how it is. That's the consistent way to look at that verse. Continuing with the application contextually and thinking about the wording of verse 16, having a good conscience. Hmm. The Apostle Paul told the evangelist Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.5, the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart and of a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. Having a good conscience. Man may make charges against you. Your conscience ought to be clear. 1 Peter 2.19, we talked about this. This is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You see, 1 Peter 3.13-17 gives us a little bit more to think about. But the overall point has been as such as the context has been laying out over and over again in different ways. Now, when we talk about the conscience, this doesn't mean it's good to trust in your conscience. Remember the Apostle Paul, as we know him, was Saul of Tarsus, and he persecuted Christians. Galatians 1.13, you've heard of my conversation in time past in the Jew religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. You know he did that with a good conscience. Acts 24, 16, herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Always, even when he was doing wrong. You remember back in our long introduction where we looked at John 16, 1 through 3, where whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. We're not going to trust in our conscience apart from the word of God, right? We want to make sure that our conscience is guided by the Word of God, not what we think is right or wrong and not by our misunderstandings of God's Word. But we're, not, we're, we're supposed to live of every Word of God as Jesus Christ told Satan in Luke 4, 4. We want to make sure we're living in accordance to. Now, earlier in this letter, we talked about this. We talked about living with good conduct that will outshine somebody's false accusations. In 1 Peter 2, 12, do you remember this? Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they should behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. These saints are suffering at the hands of their persecutors. They're on the run, and Peter is reminding them, keep your conduct just. Titus the evangelist was told in Titus 2, 7 through 8, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he is the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Living aright. Brethren, as we look at this text, ladies and gentlemen out there listening that are outside of Christ, as we're looking at this text, the conduct of a Christian is not permitted to turn to evil because evil is happening to faithful saints. Faithful Christians 
are to conduct ourselves in a manner pleasing to God, no matter what the world around us is doing to us. Yes. If you suffer for well-doing, well-doing that's in accordance to the will of God, and if it's really because you're a Christian, again, not such things that are common to man, like we talked about, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That is better. Guess what? We're going to talk about this again in 1 Peter 4, 15 through 19. This tells us how important this was for saints that were facing persecution to be reminded of. That in chapter 2, he talked about it. Chapter 3, he's talking about it. Chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if a man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in his behalf. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him and well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Folks, repeat. It's on repeat. 2, 3, and 4. Chapters 2, 3, and 4. It's on repeat, right? We want to lock that down in our minds. We want to understand that suffering for righteousness' sake is, as long as you know it's really righteous, it's pleasing to God. Don't go out and get yourself in trouble. Do the right things. Now, it may be that those in positions of authority, like we talked about with Stephen and like we talked about in Psalm 56, like we talked about in other contexts, it may be that they wrongly accuse us. Maybe they set up false witnesses against us. We might suffer as an evildoer without being evildoers. You know, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12, wrote Timothy, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the elect's sake that they also may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. He, for preaching the gospel, suffered trouble as an evil doer, but he wasn't doing evil. Don't do evil. If you're going to suffer, let it be for righteousness' sake. Don't do evil and the civil authorities come against you. Remember what we studied back in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 16, and we see in Romans 13, 4. The civil government's the minister of God for good. If thou do that which is evil, be afraid, for he beareth not the sword in vain, for he's a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. God has given the authority to civil governments to execute those who break the law, those that live in an evil manner. Don't suffer at the hands of civil authorities for doing wrong. If you're going to suffer, suffer for doing good. You got it? Man, it's a great text, right? I love, I, wow, it's just great. It's great. So next week, much like we see, and this is a pattern, I, I, I've, thought, I've thought a lot about this as a teacher. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm studying the scriptures, I don't just study you know, the words and the context, but I also think about it from a teaching perspective. Because it's a similar pattern here, the Holy Spirit being the author of these words uh, according to the authority of Christ and our Father which is in heaven. And, and Peter's going to do here in verse 18, similar to what he did in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. He's going to come back to Christ. So next week, we're going to pick that up. But we're not just going to talk about verse 18. We're going to go through verse 20 because... He uses Christ again, then he transitions into another context where he says, For Christ also has suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also we went and preached on the spirits in prison. This, this is great. We're going to talk about what that means, and it's going to be brought back up in 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long serving God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was praying, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water. So... <laughs> We got, we got Peter using the same method of teaching from the Holy Spirit as he did in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25 in the context of suffering. But then the, introduce, the introduction of other things to study too, that's going to play into our next uh, few lessons. Good stuff, great stuff. I hope you enjoy it just 1% as much as I love studying it and teaching it. 
I thank you for giving me the opportunity to go through this with you. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'll go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, Boomer over here has decided to lay back down, so he's not curious about the microphone uh, anymore. I hope all that movement didn't create too much noise on your end. But I thank you for listening. If all goes according to plan, I'll be back at you on Tuesday. Thank you so much. Till then, I will say goodbye.